Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, Cricket Podcast. I'm Jeff Lemon. My friend and colleague in podcasting is Adam Collins. We combine for the most popular transoceanic global cricket discussion recorded at our leisure, listened to at your leisure. Today, many things to talk about on the show. A lot of stuff is happening down under. We'll have a look back at the record-equalling one-day international winning streak by Australia's women's team. The Sheffield Shield has got underway at a big carnival in Adelaide, and there'll be a lot more of that over the weeks to come. Touring details firming for India. And prominently on the show, we're going to talk about the Indian Premier League. We've got Ben Jones from CrickViz, one of the most... uh, acute and astute cricket analysts in the world who's been paying very close attention to everything happening in the UAE, in the IPL. He's got all the acronyms in his pocket and that will be in the second half of the show. A a bit of nerd pledge, a little check on our friend Sachin Tendulkar and whatever else comes up along the way. Uh, Welcome, first of all, to you, Adam, to another episode of The Final Word. Why, thank you, Geoffrey. I can see you down the Zoom screen with your hair sticking out the front of your hoodie. I've taken the, uh, the, the liberty of taking a screenshot of you which i'll pop on twitter as we're pushing out this episode later in the week uh you look ridiculous but that's fine I'm looking great um, great is another word for it but uh, yeah well i mean uh, you've uh, you've got it you might as well flaunt it flaunt it and then sashay away the streak adam we've got to talk the streak it was quite something to be there for the equaling of the streak it was also quite something to realize that i had no idea how many months we might have to wait to see if they can beat the streak or not because that's the way that the scheduling of women's mm-hmm. cricket happens and I, I suppose maybe um maybe i should be taking a more positive slant on it first up but it did jump out that the the men's streak in 2003 the last time they lost a game before the winning streak started was in january 03 and the winning streak ended in may 03 so <laughs> they went through four months the women's team the last time they lost a game was in the World Cup of 2017 and then they got to play their 21st ODI in the October of 2020. So it gives you an illustration of how much less women's cricket is scheduled because the boards running the show can't be bothered. Well, look, I think that's... uh that's influenced by what's happened over the last six months as well. There's only four Australian women who've played in all 21 of the games where I imagine without having it in front of me, I, that core of the Australian team through the 2003 World Cup and just leading up to it, the Tri-Series and, and so on would have been 
wouldn't have been the identical 11, but maybe eight or nine of the 11 would have played in all of those games. But yeah, it's not that I don't think the boards can't be bothered scheduling it. I mean, the Indian team were meant to be coming to Australia. That series hasn't formally been called off yet, as far as I'm aware. So it's possible India's women will come out for three one-day internationals in January. But that was with a view to going straight to New Zealand for the World Cup. Obviously, that's now not, not happening in early 2021, much to our dismay, which suggests that it's very unlikely that Australia's women will play again uh, through this summer and hasn't even really started yet. They've played all of these games in the first week of October and it's unlikely they'll wear the green and gold until that tri-series in New Zealand against England. So England and Australia going out to New Zealand for that uh, in the second half of February. So the middle of the summer, there'll be nothing there for them, which is disappointing. But yes, I suppose in, in large part due to COVID on this particular occasion. In terms of the good news, it's worth taking several moments to appreciate just how bloody good this team is. Mm. Uh, we saw that across this three-match series. The second game was where Meg Lanning made that 100 in true Meg Lanning style where she needed a boundary off the last ball and, of course, just opened the face and ran it through backward point in the way that she scored so many runs in her career. That level of class, that way that she's seemed a class above everybody else basically since she started in 2011. But then she was missing in the last game, the streak equaling game, and it didn't throw the Australians off at all. So they've got their captain, their first drop, who's made 14 one-day hundreds by that point, nearly 4,000 runs. She's gone, so they throw into first drop Annabelle Sutherland, who's still 18 years old, has played two ODIs, before that all in the same week got to bat once and generally bats down the order at you know seven or eight and and he's predominantly a bowler came in and batted at first drop made 35 pretty classy runs didn't score particularly quickly but she was in with Rachel Haynes who was scoring very quickly so it worked for the team to have a, a solid partner just at the other end just holding things up and and that gave them the platform for Australia to push on to 325 and it just really struck me how when when the men's team went through that streak they had Ricky Ponting at first drop who's you know statistically still the most prolific number three batsman in one day history. He made over 12,000 runs batting number three for for Australia. And then the Australian women's team can say, well, we're going to drop an 18-year-old into that role mm. and still nail it and still win the game comfortably. It felt like a junior rep team uh, call, and that said not to do with the Australian uh, setup, but more to do with how weak New Zealand have become, really, that they could get away with that 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 wasn't considered to be a measured risk. It was, oh, well, we may as well uh, give Annabelle Sutherland an opportunity to show her wares with the bat. Yeah, she's a bowling all-rounder, absolutely can bat, but uh, you're afforded those kind of uh, privileges when you're as strong as this Australian team are. And I think it stuck up on us a little bit too, Jeff. You think about... Um, you know, women's cricket, international women's cricket, and often we're, we're talking about T20, the T20 format. There have been two T20 mm. World Cups since the last 50-over World Cup, and Australia haven't been impregnable in that form of the game, although they, they have won both of those global tournaments. But, you know, of course, they dropped the, the World Cup opener against India in would have been early March this year, I think it was, or maybe late February. They dropped a game uh, at the previous World Cup as well, also to India. My, my point there is, is that we don't think of them as infallible. We think of them as the best team in the world sure but there are others right there with them on their day 
in the one-day form, which has been under the radar, even though the ICC Championship does mean that across the four-year cycle, everyone plays everyone in that top eight bracket. Because of COVID, uh, because T20's had a, a, a more important position in the pecking order in the last couple of years with those two World Cups, we've almost forgotten, I think, that they have, haven't, as you say, lost a game. Their streak's incredible. Seven series on the trot, they've won 3-0. And sure... In T20 cricket, it can be a bit more of a lottery on occasion. They did drop a T20 to New Zealand, the third game of that series last week. But as far as 50-over cricket, when, I mean, Lanning said it herself at the end of the T20s, she just wanted a longer period of time to play cricket. They just want to be out there for a longer game. And Haynes stepping in as the uh, temporary captain, it's like nothing changes. Lanning's a formidable character, but Haynes has never been more effective for Australia with that in hand. And the way she leads that side in Lanning's absence is exemplary and everything's just so good about them they're almost unbeatable you think at this point I can't conceive of a scenario where they would even drop a one day right now so it is a shame again that we won't see them in this format of the game until February also worth noting that this was the first time since Meg Lanning debuted in 2011 that neither Lanning nor Perry had been in the team yeah so Lanning had only missed I think 10 games in that whole period but in each of those games Perry had been there and in all but one game back in 2012 I think it was right at the start of that streak Perry had made significant runs with the bat the the one game where she didn't she was batting down the order at number 10 at that point so Perry's always been there when Lanning hasn't been to make sure that the gap is filled. They're now at a point where they didn't need either of them. They didn't look like a team that was short any key personnel. And, and part of that was Haynes across the series. She made 44, 82 and 96 and would be annoyed at not having got 100 out of those last couple of innings. But it was the manner in which she scored. She was so aggressive. She took her T20 approach into the 50-over game. She was savage on anything short. She was playing the pull shot a lot. She was happy to loft the ball, and she was savage with with the cut shot and the, mm. the slash through backward point. And when you've got a, you know, a player who's, in cricket terms, advancing in years, but has been able to add such a dimension to the game... I mean, it, it, it shows you what's been possible with the professionalism over the last few years and with the ability of these players just to focus on what they need to get better uh, in terms of their own game. Yeah, that's it. And the fact that New Zealand fell away so dramatically. And, like, of course, credit to New Zealand for putting themselves through the rigorous quarantine process before starting those six games, playing them in quick succession. All of those caveats acknowledged, they did fall in a heap at the end, didn't they? All out for 93 in that final game, beaten by 232 runs. It was all over in 23 overs or something like that. Six Australian bowlers used. All of them picked up wickets. The squeeze was on from the get-go. They lost Sophie Devine first ball. And really, I mean, I feel like we just continue to come back to this point. But when New Zealand's biggest guns don't fire, and of course Susie Bates was missing with a shoulder injury, it meant that so much of it comes down to Devine and Amy Satterthwaite. And they just don't have that, that next tier down who can perform successfully and consistently against Australia. Australia and, and it shows almost every time they play against them. The Sheffield Shield, Adam, it's underway in, in Adelaide. We might talk to Barat Sundaresan next week, who's, who's over there watching everything very closely and he's very relieved to finally have something to do in South Australia. <laughs> but headline moment, first off the top. Well, there are two competing headlines. One for you is that, and for you and Barat, who are particularly on this train, is that Michael Nisa made his first first-class ton and picked up a fiver. First off the rank for me is whisper it, whisper it to yourself. Sean Marsh, 100. <laughs> Sean Marsh is coming home, baby. 
Cricket's coming home. A, a, a big ton for S Marsh. And you never know. You just never know. Oh, a little injury here, a little vacancy there. And suddenly, who might be parachuting in for Boxing Day? SE. I'm just, just floating it. You should. You should float it, even though uh, Lang has kind of hinted that his old mate won't be returning to the national team, if you say. If, if injuries did hit and there was... Uh, I think more likely in this weird summer, if there was some quarantining issue or there was, if there was a COVID oh, yeah. outbreak... Uh, that mm. might um, require them to go to the old-timer Sean Marsh who did back an unbeaten 110 as West Australia oh. were racking up declaration runs in that second dig and fair enough too. What so. if... Can I float something here? Yeah. And this is not something we've prepared for off the top. But what if a COVID outbreak, um, you know, that doesn't hurt anyone, but what if it sweeps through, say, the Australian team hotel and they have to get an entirely new squad of 15 for <laughs> the a replacements. test match. Who's, yeah, the replacements. Who's in it? Because that would be incredible. Who's, let's assume everybody's back from the IPL uh, yeah. by that point. Who's, maybe Peter does Maxi finally get a test in Australia? Peter yeah, Siddle would Peter be back. Would, would Sean be, Marsh would be, would be back. Yeah, if you're looking at the old guys, uh, Jackson Bird, who's out of oh, yeah. calculations at the moment, but he'd be right there as well. Matt Renshaw. Matt Renshaw. He made runs batting at number five this week, so he wouldn't need to necessarily be an opener. Jack mm-hmm. Witherald, who made 100 for SA this week, always seems to be consistent at the top of the order for them, but never really gets a look in for the Australian Usman side. Kawaja Usman Kawaja would, would absolutely get a crack. Usman Kawaja. He, he didn't make runs this week. He's one of the only Queensland batsmen who didn't, but you're right mm-hmm. in saying that. Cameron Green, who is the, the young gun, I don't expect he'll be in the in the, in the the squad, but um, as in he won't be in the senior squad, but he's sort of, again, in that category of players who they're, who they're getting ready to play soon. Bring back Bryce McGain. Give him oh, a, a yes. run. Finally get a shot to play in Australia, you know. Like even the ledger. Like there there are so many possible redemption stories that could what is Xavier Doherty up to? <laughs> get on the phone or, or crazy Well, crazier. they need big score. Well, this is the other thing, wouldn't they? I mean, based on your hypothetical, if it mm. went through the Australian squad, the assumption is that it'll be a massive squad, isn't it? Because of COVID mm. and because they want to play yeah. intra-squad games. It might so be it'll the, be the first 20 players. Or, and the rest even. I think Pakistan had 26 players here or something like that. So okay. let's assume it's at least 22. Then you're going into your third 11 to pick a test team. And I tell you what, Sean mm. Marsh would be in my side, that's for sure. West Australia ended up winning comfortably by 205 runs after Ashton Agar made an unbeaten century in a Pfeiffer as well. Andrew McGlashan from Crick Info made the point that it had been a decade since uh, the last instance of a player taking five wickets and making a ton in the same Shield game. Then it happened twice on the same day. Nisa raising his uh, unbeaten century and then Agar taking a Pfeiffer after in the first innings Agar made 100 and Nisa took five wickets so they complemented each other nicely <laughs> I think they were playing games about a kilometre away from each other weren't they? Karen Rolton Oval uh, was where one fixture was taking place and they're all in the parklands there in Adelaide so the Agar thread's an interesting one isn't it because I think if you go back to 2013 which of course you're at his debut at Trent Bridge that, um, that you know incredible uh, performance as a teenager a lot of wise judges were saying that yeah he he bowls spin and he's tall and, and, you know, he gives it a rip. But watch this guy bat. He's going to make it long term as a, as a batsman. Hasn't really kicked mm. on in red ball cricket to that extent, although he does bat number seven in the, in the T20 side at the moment for Australia. But, I mean, 
if he were to make a thousand runs in the season, let's not get ahead of ourselves here or anything, but if he had a big season and continued to take wickets, well, there are three tours to Asia in 2022. There's, of course, the Bangladesh series, which is meant to be coming up between now and the end of the World Test Championship cycle, unlikely as it is with COVID. But he'll just keep himself right there. And if he can, you know, be used as a, as a test number seven rather than an eight or a nine, well, that, that certainly will advance his cause. Yeah. And he can, you know, join that list of uh, players who are specialists in being dudded on Asia tours where they can't possibly succeed. He'll be up there with John Holland and Glenn Maxwell. And, you know, <laughs> oh, you get the Bangladesh tour. Uh, you get the UAE tour, fellas. Enjoy. Good luck. Enjoy your two for 180 from 64 overs on a pancake at Dubai. But who knows? But, I mean, oh, actually, take it another way. I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah, that, that's a good point. But let's think about life in a post-Tim Payne world. Let's imagine a scenario where Australia's next wicketkeeper could bat in the top five. I know it's not fashionable, but it does happen periodically. And then mm. suddenly you open up a bit of flexibility in that middle order, the way that England did quite effectively against India a couple of years ago when they had Johnny Bairstow able to bat higher up the list and so on. It might mean that Agar could find himself number seven in the test team in a bowling group that includes five. Now, a lot of work to be done. Sure, I'm not saying that Agar steps in on the back of one century, but if he were to have a big year... I mean, he's the right age for it now, isn't he? He's, I don't know how old he is since um, since his hair went. That was that was my greatest <laughs> moment of feeling my own mortality when, you know, like cute little adorable puppy-faced Ashton Agar with his little shrug and his little smile. And then his hairline started receding and I was like, oh God, we are all going to die. Life is thundering blissful towards death in a stampede. It happened quickly, didn't it? When we were on that tour in so 2015, fast. so Agar's first return to the Australian team having had that sort of memorable taboo in in the baggy green and the hair was going then at age 21 and it was gone by you know a summer after that if that so but yeah, yeah I think he might be 26 or 27 around that I, I think that there's there's a few a few twists and turns with Agar the red ball player I hope there will be with Michael Nisa as you mentioned before Barat Sanderson and I have been banging the drum about this for a couple of years now, not just because of the record that he has at first-class level, but just watching him bowl to the other high-quality Australian players in the nets, which Bratt's made an art form of, but the way that he bowls to players like Smith and Labuschagne, he looks like the bowler in the nets who can find a way to trouble good batsmen, and I think that's a really good quality. And, yeah, as we say, five wickets to start his campaign here again. Sure, there's Stark and Cummins and Pattinson and Hazelwood, who are the first four, no question. But if they do want to implement a a rotation policy of sorts this summer, given they'll be playing four tests in quick succession against India, that has to be Nisa in consideration there as as a fifth option to weave through. And he certainly earned his debut. He's earned that baggy green. Nisa good, Nisa good. He's Michael Nisa good. There were only two games played, so Queensland beat Tassie, WA beat South Australia. Victoria and New South Wales didn't happen because the Vicks have had to cancel a couple of games because their their quarantine has stuffed them up, basically, because they've, they can't do the training that they need to do to get the workloads into the bowlers, given they're coming in from Victoria, uh, where there's more COVID going around, and so the South Australian government had more restrictions on the Vic team coming in than other teams, which makes a bit of sense, and so they've had to postpone two of their first four games and there's been some flexibility there from the authorities to make sure that happens. Yeah, so New South Wales will play Western Australia, uh, which will mean that Victoria missed their game against New South and also missed their game against Queensland to mean that they 
essentially delay their entry into the competition. Uh, just on Queensland quickly before we move back to Victoria, Mitchell Swepson picked up four for 66 from 45.2 overs in the final innings of that game against Tasmania. They won by an innings, but he bowled Queensland to victory. And I think that's, again, we talk about Agar and, and, and the arc he might have over the next two years as Nathan Lyons understudy. Well, Swepson's been the bowler they've, they've turned to in squads in recent years. Indeed, he was um, brought into the 13, wasn't he, for Sydney this year against uh, New Zealand. Obviously, was never going to play, but it's just a sign that they have him in the front of their thinking. So that's great news for the young leg spinner from Queensland. But yeah, it's a shame that Victoria are put into this situation. But I think it's admirable that CA and the States are showing some flexibility here. What we don't want is a situation where the integrity of the competition is diminished from the get-go. Yes, having four rounds back to back to back to back to start the season was, was going to be challenging to pull off. And, you know, for all the different reasons that we've talked about exhaustively on the final word. But yes, if it means Victoria play two fewer games now and then they make them up later in the season, well, so be it. Um, what we don't want is Victoria coming in underdone, getting thrashed, and then, as I say, the integrity of the competition being under question. What I like is having these grounds right next to each other, and so I'm just imagining, you know, if somebody hits a big six on one ground and the ball goes rolling into another game, <laughs> you've got WA Tassie and then some South Australian players running on at deep midweek going, sorry, fellas, just be a sec. You know, <laughs> pick up the ball and run back again. Uh, I hope, <laughs> look, they're a kilometre apart. You could do it with a decent hit. Yeah, that, that's right. It's, it's like when you've got your, your first ground where it's, it's just next to the postage stamp, second ground where often a six will get hit onto it and you've got to recover the ball uh, in the middle of your fielding innings. We, we've all we've all been there at different points when we were juniors coming through, I'm sure. Also on the broader complications, so yes, there's Victoria and the Shield and coming out of quarantine and lockdown and all the rest, but there's still no clarity over this summer, really, when it comes to what India are going to be doing. The good news seems to be in a story that Chris Barrett and John Pyrrhic had in the in the well, I was going to call them the Fairfax papers, the the uh, the nine papers these days. And Andrew Wu had a piece earlier in the week as well, hinting that Brisbane will, or well, the Queensland government will permit India into quarantine. But there's now questions about can their partners come? Will they be able to train there? It feels like that's they're getting closer to that finish line or that start line, probably the better terminology there. But it's been a rugged process. The fact that they've had this proposal with the Queensland government for, what, at least a month now, and it's put Cricket Australia into a situation where they can't announce the schedule and all the other plans that go hand in hand with that. Again, it's good that we're seeing maximum flexibility, but we're getting pretty close to that. It's truly bonkers to me that it's getting into the second half of October in a minute and we don't have a schedule from CA. Normally we see one by April, you know, April or May. And it, it's it's very unlike the normal run of things. Um, so, you know, that it tells you that there's obviously a lot of kind of gnashing of teeth going on in terms of like what's happening behind the scenes, but everything's very calm on the surface. They're all being very placid about the messaging. Oh no, everything's fine. We're, we're looking forward to working with our valued partners, Channel 7, to <laughs> delivering a great summer of cricket, which, look, it makes me uneasy. Uh, it, 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 it makes me uneasy that there may yet still be blow-ups to come because, you know, we know that the BCCI have pretty firm views about how they want things to be most of the time and, and we know that all of the state governments in Australia are being uh, extremely reluctant to be flexible on that in case they expose themselves to any criticism um, or any risk. Yeah, I'm really sympathetic to CA through all of this, really. I mean, we've already talked about the brouhaha with Channel 7 and the situation they've been put in. But 
I'm sure that CA are trying to just get this over the line, whatever it takes. As I say, they've had this proposal in with the Queensland government for weeks and they've been going back and forth doing everything they can to get it over the line. Then there's the BCCI element, which you mentioned before. I mean, a very careful balancing act is always required when, when dealing uh, with that organisation. So it feels as though they've done everything they can to this point. This isn't a situation of CA dragging their heels. I mean, you mentioned before the schedule normally comes out in April and May. And, and let's remember it did come out in May this year as well. They they did find a way to release a full schedule of cricket in May despite the fact they're in the middle of COVID because they needed to show that positive step to their partners and, and the different countries that were scheduled to come here. Of course, everything changed uh, when we had the second wave of COVID and, and so on. But let's just hope they find a way to get it over the line because a lot of complicated back and forth needs to happen with visas and exemptions and families and it's it's rough stuff. So a lot of work for those CA to plough through over the next few weeks and the sooner the schedule's landed, the better for them. And a last note that Alistair Nicholson, not the ABC Grandstand commentator, but the Australian Cricketers Association chief exec, has called time this week. Well, he'll he'll go at the end of the year, so he's, he's given notice um, after six and a bit years in the job uh, during a pretty hairy time, really, um, mm. with the, the players' pay dispute in 2017 and then all of the uh, COVID kind of pay reduction disputes and so on this year that he's seen a couple of chief executives of Cricket Australia come and go and still been in his job and has called time at his own volition, has decided that uh, it's time to try something else for a while and, and leaves with a pretty good reputation as far as the players are concerned, professional cricketers in Australia. Yeah, that's certainly the impression I get from hearing players talk about uh, Alistair Nicholson over the last few years. As you say, a pretty torrid time through that pay dispute then this year and and uh, a lot of other skirmishes along the way, but that he's been a representative they've had a fair bit of faith in. So uh, good luck to Al uh, in his next adventure. Now, before we tackle a couple of mystery numbers in Nerd Pledge we should mention that we're thinking about doing another live show, another internet live show, given that lockdowns are everywhere. The north of England has gone into lockdown. Uh, Melbourne's lockdown, which we were hoping might be coming to an end, looks like it's being extended. We don't know what the full details of that are going to be yet, but things are pretty glum in a lot of parts of the world, particularly where people are listening to this show. So Adam and I will be, we're, we're working out who we should get and who we should try to get to come on for another final word online gathering to, to see if we can provide a bit of company for, for those who want it. Yeah, so how we did this last time was through Zoom with Damien Fleming back in April during the first lockdown. Uh, we invited all of our patrons, and if you weren't a patron, you could buy sort of a, a 10 buck ticket, I think it was, but hopefully if you're inclined to come along, you'll want to be one of our patrons as well. We'll work through the details in the next few days, and we'll have some more information to give you, but the general thinking is it'll be nighttime in Australia, mid-morning in the UK, which tends to work pretty well. We'll be looking to get a guest to join us. Uh, we'll do it through Zoom, and we'll have it all pumped out on the Patreon page as well. We'll reproduce it on there. So if you can't actually join us at the time, you'll be able to watch it um, linked up on Patreon. So we thought, as you pointed out there, Jeff, that uh, it's 
a tough time again for a lot of people and uh, uh, and we want to make sure that uh, we keep uh, doing what we can in our little corner of the internet to make it as uh, well what's the word I'm looking for make it as to ameliorate uh, ameliorate some yes some of the harder edges of it uh, and uh, and we'll we'll have more information hopefully on story time this weekend Jeff to ameliorate it or to Amelia Kerr it <laughs> because watching Amelia Kerr play cricket makes you feel better too true Look, we'll also, this weekend on Storytime, we're rebooting our interview with Will Anderson from a couple of years ago, which was a lot of fun. He's an absolute mad cricket nut and had quite a background in, in country Victoria in cricket there as well. And we ended up having a, a pretty riotous conversation with Will. And that's the end of our rebooted interviews. We've gone through all of the older interviews and uh, reposted those. So they're all up on story time over the last six months or so. If you want to scroll back through your feed and find those, but we'll, we'll be up this weekend. Yeah. We, we put Jared Waitley's chat out on last week's story time. We've had heaps of feedback in our patron DMs about how much people enjoyed it. Remember that was a very different time for the final word. These early interviews, we were just kind of finding our way and working out what we were doing and the Jared interview was an important chat for us as far as doing something other than talking to a former cricketer, spreading our wings a little bit and I think it shows, listening back to it, we clearly put a fair bit of work in uh, before talking to Jared. He was up for it, spoke to us for about an hour and a half and I really enjoyed going back and listening to what Jared had to say. So if you haven't listened to last week's story time, that's all sitting there. We've got a couple of chats from Calling the Shots, which we might reboot as well. A fantastic discussion with Jared Kimber that deserves a, a broader airing and our, our interview with you, Jeff, which we might pop up on the Patreon page too, discussing your background in broadcasting. But then from there, we will have some conversations occasionally, which will pop on story time. But most of the time, Jeff, it'll give us chance to dig into plenty of... Nerd Pledge! Oh, yes, it's the game that we play with those people on that page where they support the show bless them by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what the number is just a couple on the midweek show as we like to do the first comes in from a friend of the show peter dowling uh, who is a regular correspondent of ours and we're always glad to see her name pop up in the inbox now the thing about peter dowling is that you always know that her number is going to link to tasmania in some way or another her previous number linked to Ed Cowan, if I'm not mistaken. This number is $4.29. And it, it seems to me this may not be a number that a Tasmanian would necessarily want to remember. So it's quite, it's quite brave. It's quite um, opening one's arms to the world of cricket that Peter has put this number up, if it is what I and Adam agree that it probably is. Yeah, so Bill Ponsford made 429 against Tasmania. So that's the best Tassie number that we can come up with, but obviously a record-breaking number at the time. I did for... Half a heartbeat wonder whether it might relate to the Quiney Nine. Uh, Rob Quiney was oh, yeah. the 429th Australian man to play Test cricket, and Peter Dowling, being a great friend of the show and uh, having uh, been listening to us for years, will know all about the Quiney Nine. But in all probability, as you say, it will link back to Tasmania, and thus I think it will be that 429 made against Tasmania all those years ago. Let's just take a moment to consider Bill Ponsford. There have been, in the entire history of first class cricket, now, I don't know how many matches that is, but we're at, we're at about, what, 2,500 test matches, something like that? That's about right, yep. Plus all the rest uh, for first-class cricket, where you'd have these Wilfred Rhodes-type players who play 
sometimes literally thousands of first-class matches and all of the different competitions around the world. There have been 10 scores over 400 ever by anyone in the history of the game. Two of them were made by Bill Ponsford. Two of them. The only other player with two of them is Brian Lara, who Mm. made the 400 in test cricket and the 501, the highest score in first-class cricket. So those are the only players to make over 400 ever. So Graham Hick did it once. Archie McLaren did it. Aftab Baloch did it playing domestic cricket in Pakistan. BB Nimbalkar did it playing domestic cricket in India. Bradman did it once. Not twice, Bradman. Once. Only once. And Hanif Muhammad. Uh, did it once in Pakistani domestic cricket. So to be on that list twice is a ridiculous achievement and uh, would you just take a little Bill Ponsford appreciation moment? Nicely done, Jeff. Thank you again to Peter Dowling, uh, a loyal final word patron. $2.62 is the second number we have to look at this week, Jeff. That's thanks to Julian Russell. And the clue is, as a vertically challenged youngster... I related to short heroes. So going with that clue, I was looking through 262 and none of them really worked. So, you know, Jeff Thompson, the 262nd player for Australia, he wasn't short, nor was Jacques Cullis, nor was Ish Sodi, all cap number 262. Headley Verity, uh, he was tall for a spinner, so I, I ruled him out, as I did Dennis Amos, who made a 262, an unbeaten 262 at Sabina Park uh, for England. He was 5 foot 11, so I don't think he quite ticks the box, nor does Stephen Fleming, who made the other 262 in, in Test mm. Cricket, the former tall New Zealand skipper. So originally I was thinking, well, is it Gus Logie? How do I find a way to shoehorn uh, 262 <laughs> and, and Gus Logie together? But I, I couldn't get the job done but thankfully jeff you went an extra step and you almost certainly got us there no no link to gus logie no link to james taylor who's um, definitely among the shortest to have played the professional game i think five foot eleven is short on tinder uh, if you ask like men what their height <laughs> is on the internet <laughs> anyone who admits to being five eleven is actually probably five two. Um, oh yeah five eleven yeah yeah um, colling collingwood six footer <laughs> Um, However, in terms of short people who could be heroes for Julian Russell, related to 262, Ian Bell in 2004 made 262, batting for Warwickshire against Sussex. So there's an option if Julian is is an English cricket supporter. If not, Brad Hodge, another (laughs) uh, vertically not so well endowed, uh, excellent batsman made 262 for Leicestershire. And my third option, which is maybe less likely given the era, but one that I wanted to include all the, t- all the same because I mostly I love saying this name, Lala Amanath, who was one of the pioneering Indian cricketers, went to tour England in 1947 and they had an Indian touring squad versus the rest of India game in January 1947 where Lala Amanath knocked off 262 and picked up Threefer, if you don't mind. So always doing the work was Lala and anyone called Lala you have to enjoy. Shahid Afridi, uh, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but look, I'm sure they're out there. I reckon it's Ian Bell. If Ian Bell made 262 in 2004... 
I'm just going to guess that's when Julian Russell was growing up. So thank you ever so much for your 262. As we round off this round of Nerd Pledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word. As we mentioned before, there'll be a patron live show which will be coming up in the next few weeks. So if you have been thinking about whether you want to be part of what we're doing here, hopefully that's the incentive to get on board. Uh, and we, as we always say, ever so grateful for the support we get on there. We really enjoy the conversations we have in the DMs. So if you are one of our patrons, drop us a line anytime. Let's take a little breather, put our feet up, trim the end off a fine Cuban cigar. Why don't? Why would you do that? They're disgusting. I've, have you ever smoked a cigar? They're absolutely gross. I don't know how anybody does it. But, you know, let's not do that. Let's, have, let's enjoy a Big Boss Dynamite uh, <laughs> fake chocolate cigar. More to Adam and my taste. And, uh, and then we'll be back with Ben Jones. Jeff. Adam. It's time to learn about the Zolio. This ain't my first Zolio, pal. Uh, <laughs> look, I've got some exciting news on the Zolio front, and, and I know that everybody's agog to tune in for the latest in satellite communication technology news, which we like to bring you on the final word. But Zolio just won a big award uh, during the last couple of weeks. You know we like award-winning things on, mm. on the final word. If you win, and if someone else says you're good, you must be good. Uh, they won the best new product innovation for 2020 in the Australian Business Awards. Now, I am not going to lie, I'm not overly familiar with the Australian Business Awards, but they sound like they know what they're doing. And let me tell you, they handed out a gong to Zolio because they said, and I'm going to quote this to you because this is this is pretty good, uh, a joint venture between Beam Communications and Road Post Incorporated that is pioneering the development of innovative, lower-cost, consumer-oriented global messaging solutions, including revolutionary wireless devices and apps based on Iridium short-burst data. What that means is it's a magic box that can turn your ordinary phone into a satellite communication device that can send text messages or emergency SOS messages to anyone in the world, to any phone number or any email address or the emergency response centre from anywhere on the planet. And so you should win awards for that, frankly. I couldn't agree more. I, I find myself thinking about the Zolio at strange times. We've often talked mm. about the King's Cross railway station. Not so much of an issue these days, seldom getting the tube, but we've just tacked on a, a small extra room to the back of our house, which hopefully will become Winnie's bedroom one day. And as I've been in there in recent days, I'm realising that I have no phone reception in there, not any mm. meaningful phone reception. And I've mm -hmm. thought to myself a number of times, gee, do you know what will help here? Azolio. Because what yeah. the Zolio does, it fills the gap between what the networks give you and what satellite technology gives you. This is a, a bridging device to make sure that you're never caught short. Do you know what the Australian Business Awards said, Adam? They said this product is aimed at anyone who lives on the fringe or regularly travels out of mobile coverage for work or recreation. For those residing on the fringe of cellular coverage <laughs> for outdoor recreation or enterprise loan worker safety. <laughs> and that is you, my friend. You live on the fringe. Well, you yeah. live on the edge. You're always on the fringe. And, and you're always a lone worker. You're a lone wolf. You howl in the hills and you need loan worker safety. You're enterprising. You're a loan worker on the fringe. It's all you. I'll take all of that. And I, look, I, I want to make sure that by the time that my baby girl, who, by the way, is nearly crawling at the moment, she's on her, um, yeah. on her knees and on her palms and she's thrusting from side to side as she's getting ready to move forward. 
I want to see a world, I have a dream, where when she reaches the age when she needs to use her phone, which hopefully will be in about 20 years' time and not before it, uh, that she will never have to worry about... <laughs> It'll be about in about four years' time. ...reception <laughs> not working. She'll never have to worry about the pitfalls of the King's Cross Underground Station because she'll have in her... Uh, attached to her belt, as is the custom with these satellite phones, she'll have attached to her belt not a pack of cigarettes... But a Zolio. Should I have a Zolio? I know it's the size of a pack of cigarettes, as you've noted before, but we, I'm not going to encourage that kind of behaviour. I'm going to no. encourage satellite technology instead. Healthy life decisions. It's the healthier alternative, absolutely. Uh, look, it's it's economical. They send it to you. It's easy to set up. I can tell you that because I set it up and I'm terrible at setting things up and I didn't even need to call anyone crying to make it work. It worked really easily. And did you know that more than 70% of the Earth's surface has no mobile coverage and 84% of Australia is not serviced by mobile networks? So what? if you're in those percentages, you need Zolio. And then when you've got one, you can just email your mum whenever you want from the top of a mountain, from the middle of the sea hi mum what's up uh what what are you having for dinner or you can email your enemy from high school and be like suck it i'm on a ship in the middle of the ocean and you're probably having a boring life in like woking or something you know stop by pizza express um these these are the things that you can do with zolio in your hand the power of zolio so you go to zolio.com z-o-l-e-o you order the magic box it's won awards that's all i need to say get one Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word. I'm Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon with me. And down the line, we have Ben Jones, a close friend of the show. He's been on The Final Word before talking about the importance of data and analytics and all the rest. These days, he's analyst to the stars, literally, when it comes to the Big Bash League, but uh, knows the IPL inside out. And at the halfway mark of this competition, 28 of the 56 group games having been completed, we thought, what better time to get Ben back on the show? Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I feel like after all the cricket we've lost this year, the IPL, it's very easy to turn on and turn off yeah i think that's very much the case you've got this sense of like everyone's been a bit starved of cricket and then we had the english summer being this just constant barrage of stuff and then i i kind of assumed that at the end of the summer everyone was going to kind of go okay that's fine you know premier league football's back we're gonna we've had our cricket dose but actually everyone's just still completely wanting more cricket and the ipl is filling that void and yeah i mean obviously i'm watching it constantly all the time anyway but I know friends who are kind of casual cricket fans who obviously tend to just watch England or watch international stuff, but they're kind of getting home from work or finishing their day's work from home and then just sticking on the cricket at half five, six o'clock and watching the last hour of the chase. And I think, yeah, I think that is partly to do with the fact that we've been starved of it. I think it is also that for an English audience, it's just a lovely time. Like it doesn't really eat into your evening. You're done. If you're working on it, you can watch it you know write something record something enjoy it bask in the glory of the excitement of it all but then you still go out for half past seven and have a nice time and then in my case in australia it's on after midnight sort of one two a.m which is usually when i'm sort of wrapping up for the day and maybe falling asleep with it on or whatever it is so i've been watching bits you know an hour here or an hour there rather than keeping a close eye on it as you've done given we're at the halfway mark can you point out can you identify what sort of trends have been happening during the season because you tend to get that season on season there are there are certain things certain fashions certain certain vibes man um, that a particular season has kinds of players being used certain strategies being used what's what's been emerging as far as the analytical side of it i mean there's an obvious contrast with the t20 tournament which preceded this which is the caribbean premier league 
which was played again as with all of these tournaments now on like a small number of grounds in kind of fairly they're having to use the same pitches over and over again and in the CPL that meant that the pitches were really bad they were like if you made 120 130 you were going to win the game basically because it was slow the pitches were gripping and sticking and they were damp and horrible and so all of the guys that do well over there were, were spinners. You had Imran Tahir, Sandeep Lamachani, uh, Mujibur Rahman, all these guys who have then come to the IPL and not played, really. Mohamed Nabi as well. We've seen all of these very high-profile T20 spinners who've not done just well in that last few weeks, but over the last few years. And they've basically been ignored in the first few weeks of the tournament. As it is right now as we speak on Tuesday morning, uh, Tuesday morning English time, the pitches are starting to slow, they're starting to get stickier, and we're starting to see more of these guys on coming into the side. So we're seeing that natural degradation of a tournament where you start out it being flat and hard and the seamers are just bouncing people out. And now we're moving towards the kind of second phase of it where the guy, these guys are going to be coming in and we're going to see a bit more cricket that's a bit like what we saw in the CPL, I think. The other main kind of trend for me, I'd say, was the, in terms of the venues, because obviously the COVID situation has changed things so much because of the fact that we are playing only in Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Sharjah, not least the fact that we're not playing in India. There's a big disparity between the Sharjah ground, which obviously we all know from all the, all the ODIs that have been played there, but it's just a completely different experience, the T20s that have been played there. The average run rate's been 9.7 runs per over. In the other two venues, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, it's about 8.3, 8.4. So you're seeing scores that are about 20, 30 runs higher. And actually, in the first few games of the tournament at Charger, if you scored 2-10, you were probably starting the defence, but not favourites. You, you would back teams to chase 2-20, 2-30, which is terrifying. It's a completely different sport to what we're kind of used to. But what I quite like about it is that if all the grounds were like that, it would be rubbish because we'd all be sat there watching, well, you know, 6-6, and it would be dull as dishwater. But actually... Because the other grounds have been slow and Dubai is a really big outfield, it, it does reward different kinds of cricket, different kinds of teams, different kinds of batsmen and bowlers. And I think that that makes the tournament, thankfully, not too monotonous. Because, you know, when you play on these small number of grounds, it can suddenly get like, oh, we're playing these teams again on this pitch. And that changes the experience for a viewer. Is there a difference with the number of games that a certain team will get to play at the high-scoring ground versus the lower-scoring grounds? There is a slight disparity, but basically they all play a broadly comparable number at each venue, because otherwise, yeah, for that obvious reason, it would be massively unfair if you were a team that really, really likes playing a Charger, like Rajasthan Royals, who've really struggled across the tournament generally, but when they've played a Charger in their first two games, they won, because it almost it's almost like playing... You know, a football pitch where it's like half the size, like playing, a, like playing an 11 a side tournament on a five a side court. Like, suddenly, you're like, it's a different sport, it's a different game. And so, the, the natural competitive imbalance between a good side and a bad side is kind of lost. The club or the team that we in Australia historically watched pretty closely were the Chennai Super Kings on account of the fact that Shane Watson was a big influence there over such a long period of time, Mike Hussey as well back in the day. But uh, they've gone from being finalists in 2019 and so successful over the last five years or so to really battling. Uh, Watto keeps on keeping on at age uh, 39, but they have slipped down the table. And um, from what you've seen so far, what, what do you attribute that to? I think the fact that the tournament's being played in the UAE makes a big difference because part of what Chennai have done so well down the years is make their home venue a fortress like they play they make they prepare hard pitches that spin a lot pitches that are slow and low and tough and so it rewards test players like watson like faf duplicy of like guys that can come in and are happy to kind of score slowly navigate tricky bowling for a bit and then explode at the end and that's why watson has been such an important player 
But it's also why guys like Ravi Jadeja and Harbhajan Singh, these like quality red ball spinners traditionally who can do well in white ball, why they've gone so well. Obviously, having one of the remarkable things about when they won in 2018 was that they didn't get to play any of their games, their home games in Chennai. They had to go to Pune. And so that was, for them to overcome that was remarkable. But I think to do it two years down the line, playing none of your home games at your home venue, having lost to Rish Reiner at the start of the tournament, um, he opted out for personal reasons, same as Harbhajan Singh. I think there's a few political issues in the tournament, in, within the kind of camp. And, you know, if you're a very finely tuned machine like Chennai have been over the last five, six years, you take those two guys out of it. Dhoni's a different player now. You've got guys who are at the end of their career and for all the credit that they get for giving people like Watson a long time to kind of get back into form and we've seen that, you know, be bare fruition. At this point, you feel like they're kind of just waiting for guys to get back into form who maybe are just at the end of their career and are never going to be the same players again. Huge amount of interest in Shane Watson on the final word, as always, as you full well uh, know, Ben. He's had one match-winning hand. He's unbeaten 83, another half-century along the way. Uh, give us a, an overall Watto update, please. I think the, the most interesting thing about him is that sense of the kind of vultures are circling for this guy who doesn't play obviously he doesn't play test cricket, doesn't play international cricket and hasn't for some time now. And so people come into hit, come into the Watson bubble, maybe if they're not a common listeners to the show and they haven't seen him play or they don't really know much going on about him for, you know, six to eight months and they drop onto him in the PSL or in the Big Bash for Sydney. But I think the, probably it's kind of a boring answer, but Watson's still doing Watson. Like he's still coming out, starting very slowly and then exploding in the middle overs. That's what he does. Plants that front foot. He's doing exactly the same in terms of the pattern of his play. And I think that's why, personally, I, I don't kind of, you know, I, I tend to bark on batsmen who start slowly and then accelerate because I think it's quite, a, it's quite a selfish way of playing the game because you're essentially giving yourself the valuable thing of starting the innings. But I did some numbers recently and basically looked at how batsmen accelerate after the power play. And Watson accelerates more than any other player in the world over the last three IPL seasons. And he's not really stopping doing that. He scores at about a run, just under run a ball of power play and then just under 10 runs per over from then on. And I think you can, you know, you can pontif pontificate all you like and talk about the fact that he's a lovely bloke. Da -da -da -da. This is a guy who still does all of the things that he did well. He just does it slightly, slightly more rarely, which is frustrating for those of us who love him. But I think Chan and I are probably completely right to keep, keep sticking with him because they haven't really got much quality outside of that. So outside of the, the little setup, you can maybe go faff. But you know, you're still a very strong arm game for all of the overseas Chennai batsmen. But I think if, I think if you are going to stick with one, Watson's still got that pedigree. He's still such a wonderful player, and we yeah, we all love him. We do all love him. The opposite, really, to CSK is RCB Royal Challengers Bangalore. They've been the team who've been consistently rubbish despite having Virat Kohli and AB de Villiers in their side for what seems like years and years, and yet never anywhere near it. This season, they've finally got going. They're up to third spot. Uh, de Villiers has been producing a few specials. Coley had a very poor start, but then got going as well with a couple of pretty spectacular innings. So uh, what's going on with RCB? And uh, yeah, give us give us the, the Cliff Notes version there. It is, it's deeply uncomfortable, isn't it? That, you know, in this year of all years, Chennai are bad and RCB are good. It's kind of, you know, the world is turned upside down on in every level and the IPL is not exempt from that. And I think that the re part of the reason why RCB have done really well this year is, again, going back to Chennai, Chennai haven't really got on board with all of the, the young Indian players that are bobbing around that are like 20 to 22. They haven't got any of those guys. 
and so it does feel quite stale. Whereas RCB have had this star-studded squad for years, but they've started to bring in and blood over last season, last two seasons, some of these kids like Washington Sundar, who's a kind of off-spinning low bats down the order, gives it a whack. They've got Dev Dutpadakal at the top of the order, who's a kind of looks a bit like Marcus Triscothic for English listeners. He just kind of stands there, stand and deliver, left-handed opening bat, swings through the line. He's great. It's just very fun. He'll probably, you know, fail five times out of six, but he's really, 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 really good fun. And then they've got Navdeep Saini, who's this properly quick young Indian bowler who's kind of been flirting with the Indian national team. I think he'll probably play in the World Cup, depending on when it happens, but he's he's a properly good bowler. And so I think the fact that you've got that core of youngsters who are delivering off the back of, you know, you've still got Kohli and you've still got AB and Finch has been out of form a little bit, but he's still Aaron Finch. I think when you've got that base level of, of youthful talent coming through, it makes everything easier. And that's not to mention the fact that they're actually their best player is Yuzvendra Chahal, who's probably the best leg spinner in the world right now in T20 cricket. He's been, you know, badgering away for years and years and years at the Chinnaswamy with 20 metre boundaries either side. And all of a sudden he's like, I've got all of this space that I can play with. And I can, you know, I can throw a few up on the on the offside and they haven't got to just outside edge you for six. Like, are they going to have to work to hit me for boundaries? And he looks like he's having the time of his life. And so I think when, you, when you've got those guys who are just, when you've tweaked the situation slightly in terms of the grounds, the kind of natural pattern of their development for these youngsters, this is their second or third season. There's a nice balance of experience in youth. And obviously when you've got A.B. De Villiers and, and Veracoli, you are always going to have that experience and that, that pure skill that does scare opposition. And I think that that can get, in the, in the analytical world, we can sometimes underplay that. But when you know that you've got to, if you get this batsman out, A.B. De Villiers is going to walk in, walk in, you know, you're probably still nervous before he even walks in and when he's gone back. You know, they, these guys do have an aura and it does affect the way that opposition come up against them. It will be very weird if it does end up being RCB's year in the UAE because it's like all these RCB fans who've put up with RCB being horrific and terrible and, you know, the kind of chokers for like more than a decade. If RCB win it in a, in a venue where they can't go and celebrate and it all just feels a bit a bit different... In a way, it would be a bit of a shame, but you know, we're a long way off that. Yeah, I should, uh, I should say. Yeah, interesting observation you made about Yuzvendra Chahal. I watched him bowl last night in that important big win against KKR, and yeah, really throwing it up. I'm, I'm conditioned to watching him bowl and think of him as more like Adam Zampa, really, over spinners aimed at the stumps with the occasional leg break. But he was outstanding, as were uh, uh, the the cohort of spinners that RCB have. I wanted to ask, in your role, I mean, obviously, doing what you do for CrickViz, your your job is to call it as you see it and, and put the stats out there and, and reflect on the trends and so on. But you absolutely cop it when you talk about Virat Kohli, to the extent to which you said you were going to pull back from Twitter altogether on account of the responses you were getting there. Just talk us through what it is like when Kohli's batting and you're talking about his batting, how things blow up on social media. I think it's quite an interesting little trend of, of your job. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one. I mean, I, yeah, I, I bail on Twitter for, for various reasons. It's more it's more just the general tone of everyone just screaming at each other about very minor things that I just needed a bit of a break from. <laughs> but Kohli was the straw that broke the camel's back, really. Part of what it is is just that pure stardom, isn't it? He is he is the most famous cricketer in the world. He's one of the most famous sportsmen in the world. So he's naturally going to be examined in a different way. But I think that it's for for cricket journalists like us, I think it's often a a flavour of what it's like covering other sports. That if you're writing about football or soccer and you're having to talk about you know Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or whatever, if you say, oh yeah, yeah they're the best player of all time, but then the but instantly means that everyone comes flooding in. Coley is one of the best test batsmen of all time. That's obvious. So he's clearly a phenomenal player. He's probably the best ODI player of all time. 
in T20 cricket, he is a, fel- a relatively good player. He's a good player. He's the kind of player that you'd want in a, a side if you were constructing it from scratch as like a normal domestic side. But the skills that he offers, other people do offer. He is an, anch- he's an anchoring batsman. He is an, an enabling batsman in terms of he, you know, he just gets off strike and he moves the ball around. And we saw in that beautiful innings on Saturday against CSK where he ran a huge number of his um, of his runs just with twos. And when all the commentators are getting very excited and enthused about him, like doing these, you know, five seconds back and forth and not hitting boundaries, but doing that, you can understand why. It's, it's enthralling. And I know that you guys often, when we, when we chat about T20 cricket, you go back to one of Coley's innings in the 2016 World T20 where he was just knocking it into gaps and running hard. And that, for a certain kind of cricket fan who's been brought up with a certain kind of one-day cricket, perhaps, is very much the template. And I think that people do sometimes just lean into the idea that T20 is a short one-day match. And it's just not. It is a different game. I think there's not necessarily an age divide, but there's certainly a kind of culture war or culture divide between people who want T20 cricket to abide by the kind of old-school rules. And there's a, a kind of, one of the commentators referred on, on commentary to singles being the lifeblood of the format. And it's just not true. The West Indies have formed the greatest T20 international side of all time by just hitting sixes and then dotting up for a few overs. That is a good template for T20 cricket. Peter Miller mentioned something on Twitter about how cricket coming around to the basketball idea of like shoot, go three pointers is just better statistically. And it's taking a while, but you are getting to that point. There is that revolution. Coley will always be a useful player in your side because he is someone who can stop a collapse he can play high quality bowling one of the things that um, our colleague Chris Freddy is obsessed with at the moment is the effect of high pace on batsmen who are T20 specialists so guys that aren't good Red Bull players and, and used to the quality that that can bring and so you bomb them with high pace and then they can't cope with it Coley is a guy who can cope with it he offers a very different skill set he's more like a kind of um, yeah, a Coley and a Smith these guys who are incredible in the longer formats they're used to dealing and problem solving with a different kind of threat and I think that as we go into the next the next generation of T20 cricket, I think we'll see fewer Coley's. Obviously, there's been so much written recently about Dean Jones, and I was pretty ignorant in terms of the way that he changed ODI cricket through across his career. And I know all of you, <laughs> every Australian journalist has written fantastic stuff about it, but you guys in particular. But I think that there's an extent there's a, an extent to which we're kind of in a pre-Dean Jonesian T20 world, if you know what I mean, where that kind of ultra-aggressive, you know, not really playing for yourself, getting out in the 90s kind of mentality, we're still not quite there yet. We will get there. And then there are certain players in the world who are kind of trailblazing. But right now, I think we're still very much in a kind of, in a, a more conservative default mentality, particularly in Indian cricket. You talked about the impact of fast bowling. When you look at the way the stats have gone in this tournament in terms of wicket takers or in terms of economy rate, there, there's a whole raft of proper fast bowlers who are leading those categories. So Kahisa Rabada, Jasper Boomer, uh, Trent Bolt's not quite as quick, but Jofra Arch has been very prominent, James Pattinson and Rich Norche. So they're, they're guys who can hit the radar incredibly hard. Are they having this effectiveness via pace or is it or more to do with variations and slower balls at the same time as, as having the pace option? I think what's happening is there's been a, an evolution. I think when we first started T20 cricket or kind of early on in its development, if you had high pace, you were seen as this exciting threat. But actually, in reality, we've seen that high pace can just be easier to hit because you just swing through the line and you haven't got to put anything on the ball. 
And then as a result, we kind of moved away from it and we moved towards guys like AJ Ty and James Faulkner and these guys who have all the variations who you don't, they don't give you anything to work with. And I think that was largely because T20 was still in its infancy in terms of strategy. So a guy who bowls these variations all the time is kind of easy to manage. You just go, okay, you bowl, just do, do your thing with all the tricks and, you know, do your thing. Whereas high pace needs to be used very specifically against very specific batsmen in very specific situations. And that's what we've seen with Delhi particularly, you're right to bring up Nokia and Rabada. They've basically been the perfect duo because Shreyas Iyer is very much in that side as captain to kind of implement Ricky Ponting's plans. That is, he is a young captain who is very influenced by his coach. And I think Ponting is, well, Ponting is on record as being extremely across matchups and all of the things that that entails in terms of like, right, Batsman X can't play pace, Batsman X can't, or Batsman Y can't play slow left arm. And that's what Ponting has been able to do by having Rabada, who is a guy who bowls at the, at the death, Nokia is a guy who can bowl at the top and the middle. They're able to bomb batsmen who are vulnerable to it with high pace. And I think that by using it at specific times rather than just like, oh yeah, he's quick, give him the new ball, when there's, you know, when there's two fielders out and, and Nick over the slips goes for six every time. Well, because they can use it in a more intelligent way, fast bowling just becomes another another tool to be used rather than something that has to be either revered in a creepy way or scared in a creepy or makes you scared of in a creepy way, if you know what I mean. In terms of the, 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 you can use it more sophisticatedly because T20 discourse has developed in the last few years. Well, this is it, isn't it? I don't think someone like maybe you'd have a different view to this, Ben, but I'll put it to you that James Pattinson doesn't feel like the sort of bowler who would have necessarily been. Uh, a highly valued asset in the IPL three or four years ago, but gets picked up in the in the auction this time around, gets an opportunity, does well with it. We think of Pato as a classic fast red ball bowler, not necessarily having as big a bag of tricks, but this kind of goes to your point, doesn't it, that they've found the cheat codes to fast bowling in T20 cricket over time. It's not about, you know, just bowl your quicks in the power play and try and bowl Yorkers at the death. It's more sophisticated than that, and it, and it lends itself to having a player like Pattinson in your, in your eleven. I mean, specifically on, on Pattinson, I think what's been interesting is that at the start of the season, I don't think he was in Mumbai's first 11. I think he would have been replaced by Nathan Coulter-Nile had he been fit. Because Coulter-Nile's got an incredible records in T20 cricket generally, and I think he would have started as favourite. And so it's it's an interesting one that Pattinson kind of got himself in the side and then was like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm actually the perfect bowler for these pitches. I'm going to bowl just back of a length quick, get the seam position right, and he's nicking people off for fun at the, at the top of the innings. The other story that we always have to make sure we're across on the final word is the Maxi story. What's the latest in Glenn Maxwell land? Obviously the other day he, he was sent out weirdly late in a run chase and then needed a dozen off the last over, needed six to tie off the last ball and landed the ball about an inch inside the boundary rope and uh, just didn't quite get there. But it seemed like he, he should have been put in a little bit earlier than he was. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably fair. Kings eleven are a bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, that's sort of the side that Maxwell plays for. They've won one from seven games. They look a bit all over the place. They they have a good group of players, but they haven't been able to basically put anything together with any kind of consistency. And they do seem to have a really worrying trend of whenever they get close, they absolutely crap their pants and they can't they can't win it, get over the line. Maxwell has a bad record in the IPL. That's well known that he is this incredible T20 talent. He's my favourite T20 batsman ever, pretty much. I love him to bits, but his IPL record is poor. I think going into the season, there was this kind of weird sense that people were excited because the last time that he played for Kings Eleven and the last time the IPL was in the UAE, he absolutely smashed it and was and was brilliant. And everyone was thinking, okay, well, if we can kind of re-imbue Maxi with a bit of that spirit from 2014, then 
we're going to see him back to his best. He's not been back to his best. He looks like he's still struggling in the same way that he's always struggled in IPL, in that you're coming up against this next tier of, of bowlers, particularly against high pace, to go back to what we were speaking about. He just looks like he's not capable of performing in that way that we know he can. In terms of lightning rod figures, uh, more generally, there's David Warner at Sunrisers Hyderabad. Same as it ever was for him, really. Uh, fourth highest run tally in the comp so far. He's batted well with Johnny Bairstow. He's ticking over well. Yet they aren't quite uh, where they need to be in terms of the table uh, so far. The, the more Australia-England focus, though, is obviously at Rajasthan. So many players from both countries led by Steve Smith. Uh, Joffre Archer now delivering with ball and bat. Ben Stokes is back in the country now playing cricket again. Butler's had one score but hasn't really been able to influence the competition more generally Rajasthan when you look at them on paper Ben they feel as though uh, they should be right there in the in the top couple of teams but again that there's something missing well it's interesting you say that because I, I, I kind of disagree I think that I think on paper whilst they've got a lot of big stars they don't really they don't really come together as a, as a squad as, as well as others I'd probably say on paper they're probably down to come seventh or sixth but but part of the issue that I think they've had so far is that they're kind of constructed in quite an old-fashioned T20 way in terms of the squad in that they've got lots of big names and then big gap some kind of young Indian kids who are very talented like you know Mahipal Lomra, Ryan Parag they've got these kids who can they've got a bright future ahead of them Kartik Tiagi as well the young Indian quick who did well at the under-19 World Cup but the disparity between them at the moment is is not it's not good. There's a there is a big gulf. Joffre Archer is basically the MVP in the tournament, and he's going he's basically he's going at runner ball and he's hitting six every other ball. He's an incredible player at almost the peak of his powers. But what we're seeing is that he's not getting support from the rest of the side. I think in terms of the Australia England thing, there I think Ben Stokes arriving is is great because it allows them a few more options at the top of the order. I think they might. We saw them open with um, uh, Stokes and Butler in the last game, and I think that's the way they want to go over the next few. Smith is in a very difficult situation because obviously he's captain. They're not going to drop him, but he's made a couple of 50s in the first couple of games, and then he's not done an awful lot since, and he doesn't look like doing an awful lot since. And it does kind of feel like asking him to go out and slog and uh, you know, in T20 cricket. I still don't really like him as a T20 batsman. It's a thing which... Uh, whenever he does well, Dan Brettig always sends me a WhatsApp and uh, just sends me the score because he's a, more of a proponent of him in, in T20. But I still feel like Smith is a sub Coley kind of player in the sense that he's doing that job, which we've said is overrated, and he doesn't do it as well as the best players in the world. He'll probably score 100 in the World T20 final because he's Steve Smith and he's a genius, but he's causing Rajdan a few issues because he has to play. He's, no, he's an overseas player. He's the captain. And actually, he's not really delivering yet. So I think their form will be dependent not on whether Butler can fire or Archer can fire, because we know these guys, over a long period of time, always deliver quality. It's more whether Smith can kind of drag himself up to being a kind of par T20 batsman in these conditions against these guys that we're seeing. You know, this this high-quality bowling attack that seemingly every side has got, Smith never really gets any respite. And so I think how he recovers his form is going to be really crucial for why is Joffre Archer suddenly so good at batting when every time he's batted for England he's looked it, it seems to me like he he feels timid when he bats for England like he's he's not confident to go out there and try to hit sixes because he worries about getting criticized for it but I don't know if I'm just projecting my thoughts onto him yeah I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of that I, I saw someone on Twitter a kind of range hitting coach uh, mentioned the idea that he looks looser in his stance when he's batting for for Rajasthan like so which 
we can immediately go to kind of yeah reading into it and being psychological and saying ah oh, yeah he's, he, he he must be more relaxed and it's like well yeah that pro- that could easily be it it could just be that someone's had a word with him and said you know what technically you need to lower your shoulders open your arms you're a tall guy you're a strong guy just allow your natural kind of your natural ability to to come through rather than trying to kind of muscle everything just get that clean swing i mean he's massive for england genuinely regardless of why if if, if he can consistently be this player then he's going to bat number eight for England in the World T20 and it kind of solves their finishing problem because if they, they can either have maybe Sam Curran at number seven and Joffre Archer at number eight, it's kind of like two seven and a halves kind of thing. They're not necessarily both brilliant players, but over a period of time, if you keep rolling the dice with them, one of them's going to deliver every other game kind of thing. So I think for, for English fans who are kind of looking at one of the, the, the few remaining missing pieces of the jigsaw, Archer's form with the bat is as important as his form with the ball. Outside of the international stars, you've got the IPL has a history of making its own stars with players like Jasper Boomer. You mentioned Washington Sundar, who's ridiculously going at less than five and over with his bowling across the whole tournament in terms of batting players like Shubman Gill and Shreyas Iyer and Surya Kumar Yadav. Who are we looking at or who should we be looking at in terms of the next-gen Indian players, the up-and-comers at the moment uh, who are doing what they can do this year? It's a really exciting stage for all the Indian kids because there are so many, of, as you say, stars and future stars from that Under-19 World Cup that we saw them, saw them win or saw them perform, more importantly, hugely well on an individual level. We've got Ravi Bishnoi, the young leg spinner at Kings Eleven, who's been fantastic. Your Kamlesh Nagakoti and Kartik Tiagi at KKR in Rajasthan, respectively. They're both properly quick, exciting young bowlers. Shubman Gill is kind of the poster boy. He's the kind of elegant, top-order Kohli type. He bats for KKR, he opens the batting for KKR, and he is, according to our measures, like one of the most controlled, most timing-focused batsmen the IPL's ever seen. He's like a proper, old-school, classical white ball opener. Um, I mean, the talk is a lot about um, Kohli, but actually I, I think he reminds me quite a lot of Rohit Sharma as well, the way that he just kind of stands tall and has beautiful hand-eye coordination. You really do back that kind of talent to just show itself over time. But Bishnoi is the guy that I love because he's he's rocked up in a Kings Eleven side, which is kind of a bit of a mess. The attack particularly is all over the place. And he's gone, yeah, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially a child leg spinner and I'm just going to be so consistent. I'm going to go through all my variations. I'm going to bowl googlies and push the ball across the left-handers because I know that I back myself not to go too wide. I'm going to do my research seemingly. He never seems to bowl stupid balls, if you know what I mean. They're like, oh, you don't bowl there to such and such. He seems to be an intelligent bowler. And it's exciting because India just have so many good leg spinners right now. You've got Raul Chahar, Shreyas Gopal, Chahal, as we spoke about earlier. You've got Kuldeep Yadav, who's out of form, but obviously a great player. And if you've got guys like Ravi Bushnell coming through as well, suddenly India have got like five or six of the best leg spinners in the world. And it all seems a bit unfair, but they do seem to be coming through about three years apart as well in terms of their age. So they've got, they're all going to have time to develop at a nice, a nice pace. But yeah, for me, Bishnoi is the, the most exciting one, partly because he's a leg spinner, but also partly just because he's the one who's kind of having to fight for his, not just his place in the side, but he's kind of holding... Yeah, he's kind of holding Kings Eleven together as a, as a child in a man's game, really. Ben, your enthusiasm and knowledge for T20 cricket is infectious. Uh, thanks, as always, for being uh, so helpful to Jeff and I as far as what you do with your day job at CrickViz, but um, also uh, being such a great supporter of what we're doing here on The Final Word. Thank you, Carlo. Thanks for having us, guys. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Sachin. It's your birthday. 
Satchin, Satchin, Satchin. Take it away, Jeff. It's the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And as the song says, it is indeed time for Happy Birthday, Satchin. When we find out who Sachin Tendulkar has been wishing happy birthday to this week or in the last couple of weeks, he's been wishing happy birthday to many people, as is his want. Uh, if you had to do a sweepstake, <laughs> how many would you reckon, Adam? It's probably been two weeks since we last did it. What would your number pick be? I happened upon his Twitter account the other day and noticed he'd been very busy. So, look, I, I think he's doing every other day there's some other celebrity who's so if it's two i don't know 10 at a push maybe seven actually we're only seven okay so, you know every other day every well, no maybe it's eight um because there's one that i haven't put in there so yeah i mean it pretty much every other day is is how it's going at the moment so a fairly ipl heavy birthday list to start with maybe that's what's on his mind because aside <laughs> from birthdays he's just tweeting about mumbai indians games and just doing like little self-shot videos from the couch now just talking about oh two left-handers at the crease and, and so on which you know it's good it's good that satch has discovered the internet uh hardik panja got a birthday gong Bong. washington sunda who we discussed with ben you know you're bowling well when you get a happy birthday from Sachin. Rishabh Pant, your man, Adam, one of your faves, mm. got, got a birthday nod from Sachin. Hanuma Vahari, who I particularly love because I always sing his name to the tune of the Lion King Hanuma Vahari. Before you even said it, I knew that's where you were going. Exactly. It's nothing, there's nowhere else you could go. You know, what a wonderful phrase. Hanuma Vahari. It makes you feel better. It makes you feel happy just, just thinking about it. It made Sachin happy. That's why he got wished a happy birthday. And then going back a bit in time, Zahir Khan. Nice to see the the old teammate, the the, the left arm swing bowler who was you know did so much hard work for India on flat decks. His reward: a happy birthday from Sachin. <laughs> Sachin likes to branch out to other uh, Indian sporting personalities. So Deepa Malik, a Paralympian silver medalist, got a gong. Uh, also loves to get at least one actor or film producer in there. So Amitabh Bachchan. Got one there and, and loves to get a populist political figure in there. So President <laughs> Ramnath Kovind got a birthday gong as well. They round out the, uh, the happy birthdays from Sachin. I particularly liked a streak of like, what I enjoy about Sachin online is that he's so normy. He's like the most normy possible guy. And so it, sort of back to back to back, he's congratulating LeBron James for his fourth NBA title, Lewis Hamilton for his whatever it is F1 title, and Rafael Nadal for his 13th, is it, French Open. Mm. And I was like, on the perfect normie balance, that's who Sachin would appreciate. And he's like, oh, you've won a lot of things. Well done. You know, it's, it's nice to see him. You are like me. You are good at your chosen sport. <laughs> Congratulations on being a most effective professional at it. <laughs> Happy birthday from Sachin Tendulkar. <laughs> we, we cannot give 110%. By definition, 100% is the most anyone can give it any given time. And he rounded it out in true Sachin style by wishing uh, a happy day to the Indian Air Force fraternity on Air Force Day. <laughs> and I'm glad they have Air Force Day in India just to make sure the Indian Air Force does not feel unappreciated. Don't be unappreciated. Sachin appreciates you. Uh, that's all I have for you, Adam, on Happy Birthday, Sachin, this week. It wouldn't be a completed list without a reference to the military. Thank you, no. Sachin. We will talk to you in two weeks. <laughs> That's the end of the show, I reckon, Jeff. I said, Pattinson, shave those sideburns.
<laughs> I can't remember who put that up, but uh, it was somebody's note on James Pattinson's haircut, which very much <laughs> does look like Mr. Burns has told him to shave those sideburns. Not look, it is the end of the show. It's the end of the show. Uh, it's the end of the week, the weekly, the midweek, the final word, the actual show that's called The Final Word. We'll be back on the weekend with story time and with our rebooted previous interview with Will Anderson. We'll take a wander through cricket history. The Final Word is released on the Bad Producer Podcast Network, badproducerproductions.com. You can find their other shows. It is edited by David Collins week in and week out. And it is listened to by you. Thank you most of all for doing that. Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon or who tells people about it, does ratings and reviews and all those things. We appreciate all that you have done for us. And we will keep talking on the internet for you because you seem to like it. It's a final word, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. See you later. Bye. Bye.